This is the Public Radio Hour, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features here on Huntsville Public Radio 89.3 in Huntsville. And tonight we have one of each, a special program, part two of the Recycling Podcast Series from Planet Money, and a homemade radio feature courtesy of Morning Blend's Dory Nutt, who talked with Matthew McDonald and Susanna Phillips, hosts and creators of this weekend's Twickenham Fest Chamber Music Concert Series here in the Rocket City. There's a lot to pack in the show, so let's not waste a minute and get right to this amazing series from Planet Money. This is part two of our series on recycling. Part one is the origin story of why we started recycling. You should go listen. It involves the mafia. All right, let's just get this out of the way at the top here. The three R's, reduce, reuse, and then recycle. Recycling is the last option, although it sometimes feels like it is the main option, and it is broken in the United States. And to see just how bad it has gotten, you just need to go to any waste and recycling center. Except those waste and recycling centers don't really like to talk about how broken recycling is. But we found one place that would. Nogales, Arizona. It's Thursday, recycling day, and a city truck has gone to everyone's house, picked up their recycling, and brought them to a place called Tucson Recycling and Waste Services. Beer bottles. Water bottles. So water bottles, milk jugs, cardboard boxes. All this stuff tumbling out of the truck is carefully hand-sorted and hand-rinsed soup cans and newspapers and peanut butter jars from the upstanding citizens of Nogales, Arizona, who have made the effort to help save our planet and our oceans. And the guy overseeing all of this, Delbert Gallego, says that sorting and rinsing is in fact critical. Recycling is a delicate process. You need to do all that stuff. You have to triple rinse the plastic. And then if you had the lids on it, that's considered contamination. No lids? No lids. Whoa. Oh, I've been doing that one wrong. So the city of Nogales went around to everyone's house this morning and picked up their recyclables. Right. And they brought them here. And where is all this going to go? It's dumped over here for right now. And what's over here for? Uh, trash. The recycling is going into the trash. I am watching pristine beer bottles and juice cartons and cardboard boxes get smushed into a pile of wet, gooey, dripping food waste and soggy diapers. Our wish would be to to be able to recycle it, but we know we can't. We'll end up landfilling that waste. This is Kurt Wall. He's Delbert's boss. And he says something has gone terribly wrong in the world of recycling. And it's not just Nogales. Cities all over the United States are shoving their recyclables into the trash pile. Unfortunately, recycling is is not, I'm not saying it's dead, but um, it's it's certainly, uh, uh, I wouldn't say life support, but it's critical. (laughs) And uh, I don't want to be the person to burst their bubble. You will not be the one to burst people's bubble. I will burst their bubble. (laughs) Me and a bunch of cold-hearted economists. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Sarah Gonzalez. And I'm Kenny Malone. Today on the show, recycling is on life support. Cities might be picking up your recyclables, but there's a very good chance they are not being recycled. And that might be a good thing if you really care about the planet. To understand what went wrong in the world of recycling, we called economist Bevin Ashenmiller at Occidental College. So generally, I teach in uh, environmental economics. I'm an environmental economist. And environmental economics is a pretty depressing class. So I sometimes I teach a class called Marriage, Money, and Motherhood. I don't even want to know the findings of that. <laughs> I have a really good friend who teaches it, and he's always like, I just love wage gaps. They just make me so excited. And I'm like... You're like, yeah, it's not so cool on this end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, Bevan also knows a lot about the economics of recycling, and she says the first thing you need to know is that in economics, we have goods and we have bads. A good is something that you pay money to get. That's why we call it a good. We're very simple people. Um, (laughs) And a bad is something that you pay money for somebody to take it away. Every time you make a good, like a jar of peanut butter, you also make a bad. 
an empty jar of peanut butter, something someone will need to dispose of. But back in the 1990s, a few things happened that made all of our bads really attractive to China. China was making all this stuff and shipping it to the U.S. in these huge cargo ships. They were bringing a lot of tankers into the U.S. that were dropping off materials, and it doesn't make sense to bring a tanker back empty. So some smart person was like, well, then... Why don't we just fill those cargo ships up with something useful then? Like empty water bottles. China was like, we can turn those things into like polyester socks and sweaters, which are basically just woven out of really, really, really thin plastic bottles. And thus, a market for our bads was born. And eventually, about half of the entire world's junk plastic was being sent to China. Much of that coming from the U.S., And when this was working, it is what we imagine recycling to be. My peanut butter jar turning into freaking socks. I mean, that is a modern miracle. But then, just last year, something changed dramatically. China said, this isn't worth it for us anymore. Turning your peanut butter jar into socks is creating too much pollution. And frankly, it's just too much work for us now. Because... You guys aren't as good at triple rinsing your plastic as you think you are. And you're not even sorting it properly. There are milk jugs in with the peanut butter jars, lids still on, peanut butter still in the jar. A total mess. And it used to be worth it for China to just go ahead and clean this stuff up and sort it out on their end. Because, you know, labor was cheap. And so cleaning and then recycling our old plastic and aluminum was cheaper than creating new plastic and aluminum by drilling for oil and mining for bauxite in the ground, which is how we get plastic and aluminum. But then China's economy evolved. Labor got more expensive. And China said, we don't want to be the world's garbage dump. An actual quote. And so China instituted a new plan called the National Sword, their name for it. And in this plan, China said, we're only going to take recyclables if they are absolutely spotless and perfectly separated. Plus, we are going to stop taking 24 different kinds of junk, including some kinds of plastics, mixed paper, and certain metals. This sent shocks throughout the entire recycling world. Seemingly overnight, the biggest recycling market shriveled up. And you can see the impact that this had in Nogales, Arizona. You can see a lot of your really wet, nasty trash in there. Remember Kurt, that guy who didn't want to burst our recycling bubble? Here is the position he's in now. He collects all these recyclables, but he still needs to do something with them. And China used to buy recyclables. Kurt actually got paid for this stuff. But when China went away, there was no one to pay for it anymore. Now it is on Kurt to pay if he wants this stuff to get recycled. Whenever you go from being paid for a product to having to pay, there's absolutely a sting and uh, an awakening at that time. So now, Kurt could either pay $200 to get one ton of plastic recycled, or he can pay $30 to get that same ton of plastic buried in a landfill. Obviously, I'm not going to bring it there for $200 a ton. It just simply didn't make financial sense to recycle anymore. And so he has started landfilling. And cities all over the U.S. are in the same position. Some are just canceling parts of their recycling programs altogether, like Douglas County, Oregon, Franklin, New Hampshire, Deltona, Florida. Broadway, Virginia. There are entire cities that are saying, we're not even going to bother to pick up your blue bin anymore. There are no more blue bins in entire towns. But in Nogales, Arizona, they're a little more optimistic. They're at least making sure people are going through the motions of recycling. We don't want to just discontinue. We don't want to just do away with it because I think, A, it'll be hard to retrain people to, to do what we think is the right thing. And uh, we have the hopes that at some point it'll, it'll start up again. It took Americans so long to pick up the habit of separating our paper and our plastic that if we stop doing it, Kurt worries residents won't pick the habit back up once there is a market for plastic again. And sometimes when Kurt is all alone at night and he sees a particularly clean batch of cardboard boxes, his heart goes out to them. It doesn't make financial sense, but oh. These would make such great new boxes. He opens up his wallet and pays 
for that stack of boxes to get recycled. Because again, I couldn't bear to see it just going into the landfill. Uh, to just throw it in the trash would, would not feel good at all. But then eventually Kurt says he couldn't even pay anyone to take his cardboard. They wouldn't even take it. They wouldn't even take it because, again, they've got so much product, they had nowhere to go with it. There have been piles of paper and cardboard stacking up all over the country, like actual warehouses full of water bottles and piles of paper just waiting for some buyer to come back on the scene. So we've got all these recyclables piling up. What we're going to do about it after the break. Okay, so we've got piles of recycling piling up or getting landfilled because China doesn't want our dirty, poorly washed and sloppily sorted recycling anymore. So we wanted to talk to some experts about what our options are at this point. It seems the the main issue is that like if we had perfectly clean recyclables, then China would still buy it. Um, And so we could just clean it ourselves. Yeah, but I'm not sure that would be, I mean, like, there's a water question here, right? Again, Bevin Ashenmiller, who teaches all the depressing classes. This is the argument that people are constantly having. Like, do I spend all the water to clean my peanut butter container out? It takes so long to clean out a peanut butter (laughs) container. (laughs) Right? And is that economically efficient for me to waste all that water cleaning out the stupid peanut butter thing so it can be recycled? Bevin says in places like California where water is precious, no, you should not waste water on this. And hot water heated by burning fossil fuels? Forget it. You will quickly undo the environmental benefits of recycling. So, okay, maybe we should not clean extra carefully and then ship our recycling to China. But all these recyclable things are piling up all over the U.S. So the U.S. is now looking for another country that maybe doesn't care as much if our stuff is dirty, you know, the way it used to be with China. So you expect the baton to be passed, and it has been passed. This is Thomas Kinneman, an environmental economist at Bucknell University. Indonesia, India, Malaysia, these countries will accept some of this stuff, and they have been. Um, and they'll they'll go through the same process. Of accepting it until they say, okay, never mind, it's, we, we don't yeah. want it anymore. At some point, it looks like plastic, and at some other point, it starts looking like garbage. Yeah, Is that like as the saying goes? <laughs> I actually just made that up. So. Okay, well, we'll trademark it to you. Thomas is kind of the economist when it comes to looking at all the financial and environmental costs and benefits of recycling. If you just landfill a peanut butter jar, obviously that has costs. And Thomas takes that into account, but he says... There are also costs to recycling. Like, think about what it entails to recycle that peanut butter jar. A giant truck has to come to your home to pick up your peanut butter jar and then drive it somewhere to get sorted and then drive it to a recycling center and then probably put it on a train, which takes it to a boat, which takes your jar halfway around the world. There are costs here. There are financial costs, paying the truck driver, the boat driver, the sorter. And there are, of course, environmental costs, like the pollution from trucks and trucks and trains and boats. And that's where you start wondering, okay, wait a minute. Is recycling worth it? And when you crunch the numbers, Thomas says, more recycling isn't always better for the planet. Sometimes it is worse, including in ways that you may not have thought of. Here's sort of the untold story is that China's ban may may actually reduce the amount of plastic that ends up in the oceans. China was not very careful about what got into their ocean for a long period of time. And if some of the plastic piles were just too corrupted, they could do whatever they wanted with it. They dumped them in the ocean? So it's... uh, Okay, we know that there is a big pile of plastic floating in the ocean. And Thomas is like, how do you think it got there? One bottle at a time? Really? You could imagine, oh, that, that big pile of plastic in the ocean came from the odd bottle being blown off the dock in San Francisco Bay, and it went out there and joined all of its friends, and they're all hanging out out there off of the coast of Hawaii. Um, That's probably a very tiny part of it. Countries historically dumped waste out in the ocean. You guys, Thomas is saying that our valiant recycling efforts have been hurting the ocean. And those cute sea turtles. If you're given two options, if you're in the middle part of the country, there's a landfill about 50 miles away, or put it on a boat to China and ask yourself which plastic bottle is most likely to end up in the ocean. I'll let you answer that yourself. And this gets us to the first uh, of what is going to be several controversial 
Thomas Kinneman ideas. And we're just going to save you the Googling. You can email us your complaints <laughs> to planetmoney at npr.org. But hear Thomas out, okay? He is an environmental economist. He is interested in helping the planet. So I know it's hard to hear, but Thomas is saying that at the moment, it is better for the planet if your plastic ends up in a landfill instead of on a boat shipped off to be recycled. And it's not just about falling in the ocean. This is about the overall environmental cost of that journey. And actually, his analysis finds that this is also true for glass. It's better if that ends up in the landfill. Paper, though, he finds it can go either way. Sometimes recycling is better, sometimes it's not. But good news, everyone. You can still recycle some things, certain materials, Definitely, Thomas says, it is terrible if it ends up in a landfill, like metals, tin, and aluminum. Think soup can and coke can. Thomas says mining for new alumina in the ground is worse for the environment than the environmental footprint that goes into recycling aluminum, even if we do ship them around the world. Anytime an aluminum can ends up in the landfill is a a problem. So we should should be targeting 100% for those materials. As in, we should basically do everything we can to make sure aluminum and other metals do not ever end up in our landfills. All this time, we've been demonizing water bottles and LaCroix cans have been skating by. I'm going to watch you personally recycle that, Sarah Gonzalez. (laughs) I'm going to recycle it. Here's the twist. Tin and aluminum are still being recycled by the U.S. There is still a market for metal. Do you want me to crack another bottle? Sarah. <laughs> I, brought, I brought backups in case I didn't crack it properly. <laughs> Moral of the story, Thomas says, Sarah is going to need to recycle all these cans and she should bury her plastics. Yeah. Put it all in the landfill or, or, or burn it, which is what's happening as well oh, in parts of the world. Hold on. <laughs> uh, it is better environmentally to burn plastic. That is not going to go down well with some of our listeners, I feel like. Absolutely won't not go down well in the United States. Uh, You have to travel to our um, other developed countries in the world. So you are making the case for burning plastic. uh, It's going to be expensive. Actually, the most expensive way to dispose of waste. But Thomas says it is surprisingly the best for the environment at the moment. Better than shipping to recycling places all over the world and better than landfilling. In Germany and in the Netherlands and in Sweden, they've embraced a new form of incineration, which I referred to as incineration 2.0. Incineration 2.0. And Thomas says these newer, fancier incinerators actually give off fewer dangerous emissions than a backyard charcoal barbecue. He calls incineration the Cadillac plan because he says it basically solves all of the problems. Incinerators generate electricity and hot water, and the ashes are used for things like sidewalk tiles. It is very expensive, but he says incineration 2.0 is the future. That that's a ridiculous. That that's a ridiculous. <laughs> your now, face. Yeah. No, that, that, you're not. You're not look, buying it. <laughs> ultimately, this is Eric Goldstein, an attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council, and Eric is so not down with incineration 2.0. Well, some people have said that. Uh, I guess uh, they don't say it to me <laughs> directly. They know that would be a mistake. Uh, well, we wanted to talk to Eric and the NRDC because they represent another ideology on recycling. It's more absolutist. Well, we like recycling. (laughs) They say we owe it to the planet to find a way to make all kinds of recycling work. Plastics are made from fossil fuels. If we continue to utilize every bit of coal and oil, petroleum, that's buried under the ground, we're going to have a planet that is uninhabitable. Eric says the minute you burn or landfill a plastic jar instead of recycling it, you just took a resource from the earth, the oil, to make the jar, and you didn't even try to use it as much as possible. You never gave that resource a second life. Not good. And he says Thomas's calculations are based on how things are today, where we have to ship things around the world to recycle them. If the U.S. were to invest in more recycling plants domestically, the calculations would change. It could make sense to recycle. And 
we also need to recognize that maybe it shouldn't all be left up to municipalities to solve this problem and that manufacturers ought to bear more of the burden for figuring out how to deal with this ever-growing amount of waste that we're generating in the United States. Make less and use less. Reduce. That is the best thing we can do. And our environmental economist, Thomas Kinneman, totally agrees. It's just that right now, a lot of things come in plastic. Your shampoo, your peanut butter. So what are we supposed to do? <laughs> it's okay to put it in the garbage pile, put it in the landfill and feel okay about it. And look, we get it. Putting a plastic container into your trash can, it is going to feel bad. You're going to want to pull it out and put it in the recycling bin. Thomas knows this urge very well. I recycle actually all my plastic, even though my own data suggests that it's not always good to. You still recycle? Yeah, I'll even clean it out a little bit before I, I put it into the container. If you have a story idea, send us an email, planetmoney at npr.org. We also have a newsletter, just the right amount of economics for your inbox. You can subscribe by going to npr.org slash planetmoneynewsletter. That is npr.org slash planetmoneynewsletter. Today's show was produced by Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi and Liza Yeager. Bryant Burstett edits our show. And Alex Goldmark is our supervising producer. By the way, Kenny and I, we are still recycling. If you really want to be good to the environment, you're just going to have to do a little research, find out how your city is responding. I'm Sarah Gonzalez. I'm Kenny Malone. And we have to give a special thanks to Lowell Harrelson of Mobile, Alabama. He is basically the reason why the United States started residential recycling. And his story was part one of our series. This is NPR, and we thank you for listening. A huge thanks to the fine folks at Planet Money for giving us permission to re-air that special podcast series. You can find tonight's episode and links to this Planet Money recycling series on our website at wlrh.org. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. And tonight's homemade radio feature focuses on Twickenham Fest, an annual series of chamber music concerts held around the city, free and open to the public for anyone to enjoy, featuring some of the best composers and musicians from all over the world, created by Huntsville natives Matthew McDonald and Susanna Phillips. This year's concert series is the 10th anniversary of Twickenham Fest, so they're featuring 10 concerts around the city. Some of them have already begun. You can find more information about getting your ticket or getting on the wait list at twickenhamfest.org. Matthew and Susanna stopped by the WLRH studios to talk with Morning Blend host Dory Nutt about the concert series and what's happening this year. We are thrilled to have the co-founders of Huntsville's own Chamber Music Festival, Twickenham Fest, back to the studios to tell us what's going on this year with the fest. Welcome, Susanna Phillips and Matt McDonald. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We're so glad you're here. Let me give you a proper introduction in case there's anybody out there who doesn't know you or know of you. Besides being co-founders of Twickenham Fest, Matt McDonald, you are a principal bassoonist of the Rochester Philharmonic and very active as a chamber musician. And Susanna Phillips, you are the queen of the opera world, soprano with the Metropolitan Opera for the last 11 seasons, soloist with symphony orchestras all over the world, and popular with recital audiences. We all know that when you guys are in town, that means that some fantastic music is coming our way real soon. This is the 10th year of Twickenham Fest. What are you doing to celebrate? Well, we are doing 10 concerts throughout the fest um, to celebrate our 10th year. 10 concerts. So besides the usual Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday afternoon concerts that you would get most anywhere, what are some of the maybe unexpected ones? What else is on the docket? Well, we have uh, two, one one becoming a, a popular thing, uh, the Bach by Candlelight concert, of course. Oh, yes. That's um, always that's, been uh, hugely popular. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's one of them alongside another favorite, the Pajama Jam. 
Okay, so tell us about that. That's for kids, I take it? Yes. Um, anyone with children or um, the need to go to a concert in their pajamas can come to the Huntsville Public Library. Or maybe anybody just wandering through the library on that morning Absolutely. can stop by. Yeah. You don't have to be wearing pajamas. You don't have to, but it is encouraged. <laughs> are, are you going to uh, wear pajamas? Yeah. Uh, I will wear pajamas. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yes. All the musicians wear pajamas, and uh, all the hopefully all the people will be wearing pajamas, and it's an opportunity to be introduced to the instruments and try them out. Okay. Right. Of course, nice. the point is not pajamas, but uh, instead <laughs> you'd say hands-on experience for your child or, or family member who wants to look up close and personal, not worry about making noise or, you know, keeping their hands to themselves. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, sounds great. So, so you've got something late at night, something early morning for kids. What else is going on? We have two um, lunchtime concerts, that one at Hudson Alpha and one at the Redstone Arsenal this week. Uh-huh. And also we have a, a young patrons concert um, where we're doing a really cool piece by Bartok for two percussionists and two pianos. Oh. Uh, so it's a very, very cool piece. And, and, and seldom done. So audiences get a chance to see that. It's a fun piece to experience, especially in person, to mm-hmm. watch, the, watch right. the musicians do it. Definitely. Percussionist, yeah. always fun to watch. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that the performance of that piece really is representative of a really fun activity that happens at Twickenham Fest where actually the performers themselves were the instigators for that performance. They, they said, we're, we want to come, we want to play this piece. And yeah, it's a little hairy logistically, but we can make it happen. <laughs> All of these add up to 10 concerts starting, I guess, Wednesday night? Tuesday. Tuesday. Tuesday evening, yes. Okay. And because it would be hard for us to give out every one of these dates and times and locations, just to say that people can go to your website, twickenhamfest.org, and click on events. It's really pretty easy to navigate. And, and you might have heard us say in our PSAs here at WLRH for Twickenham Fest that Admission is free, but registration is required. And that just means go to their website and kind of navigate through. You can click on the event button at the top and register for a place. And I have to say that when I did that the other day, I clicked on a concert I wanted to go to the Sunday afternoon, and it said it's full. But click here to get on the wait list. And in less than eight hours, I got an email saying, sign in. You have a few hours to claim your spot on the wait list. So even if you have to get on the wait list, uh, go ahead and and join in. But you can see all the events, what time, what location, what's going to be on the programs. So can you tell us about a few of your performers here this year? How many do you have coming in? Do you know exactly? Oh, goodness. Off the top of my head, I'm not quite sure. I think it's 15. It's around 15. Okay. One thing that I think is really fun this year is that we have three bassoonists here in town <laughs> taking Huntsville by storm. Okay, so we, we've got a number of bassoonists. And then, uh, let's see, I guess you've got some percussionists coming because where, where are these guys from? So Jason Haheim is the principal timpanist of the Metropolitan Opera. Oh. And Stephen White is the associate principal timpanist and a percussionist at the Metropolitan Opera. Okay. So they're both um, very, very accomplished percussionists and they're coming. Okay. And um, they've actually both been here before playing separate pieces. Uh, Stephen was here playing Trouble in Tahiti. Last year. Uh-huh, that was last uh-huh, year. And yeah. he was manning like a mountain of percussion instruments. <laughs> By <on> himself? himself. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Jason played Soldier's Tale. Oh, Stravinsky, that's been about uh, two, two or three years ago. Yeah, yeah. two or three years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. They're both now coming at the same time, which is really exciting. Well, this says a lot. I, I think looking at the list, there are several names that I recognize from past years. Pianist, Amy. Amy Yang. Yang. Yes. What I think I really enjoy doing as a our co-artistic director with Matt is um, figuring out how to invite people, who to invite, um, what year to invite them. And every year we try and bring back some people that have been here before so they, uh-huh. can, they can almost help the newbies <laughs> figure it out right. and also bring some new people who've not been here before and can um, and kind of infuse the festival with a little bit of new blood. Mm-hmm. And um, we find that that combination of people is, is wonderful. It also allows uh, people in the Huntsville community to form relationships um, right. with these musicians and um, vice versa. And so I was going to ask you how these are chosen, and you just explained that, but it kind of starts with you two deciding what direction you want to go to, and then it goes out from there. Do you personally know everybody that winds up being invited? You know, as the festival gets a little bit up there in age, at least a little bit more, we have 
met people at Twickenham Fest. Um, and we, you know, those people are, are here based on, you know, wonderful recommendations from people we know or, or just well known in the field. And mm-hmm. I would certainly say the core of musicians is our, our friends of ours that we've worked with before. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And um, there is a small percentage of, of, of uh, friends of friends who come. And one thing that's very important, we have two criteria for um, people to come. Yes. One is that they have to be a really incredible musician. Mm-hmm. And the second is that they have to be a really wonderful person. It's very much like uh, taking a significant other home to meet your family. <laughs> Musically, it's exactly like that for Susanna and I, since Huntsville is our music family, our origin, uh-huh. and it, we are not going to take someone back to Huntsville under our the auspices of our recommendation or our relationship with them who are not going to exemplify these, you know, wonderful traits that we hold uh, really dear and that Huntsville ex- um, has, has come to expect. Itself. We've yeah. met the most wonderful people at Twickenham Fest year after year. That's great. So um, you kind of mentioned that the two percussionists that are coming this year asked to play the Bartok. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have other people that come here with pieces they want to play, or do you two decide what the programs will be? Oftentimes we will, uh, we will come up with a program idea, but what we do every year is ask, the, ask all the people coming if they have a particular piece they'd like to play. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, um, for example, we'll have a... Violist who says, I'm playing this piece in six months and I'd like to try it out beforehand. Would you mind if we programmed it so I can prepare it for Twickenham Fest? Mm -hmm. Or um, uh, the you know, we'll, we'll say, oh, you know, we'd like to do this particular piano trio. This is what happened this year. We programmed a piano trio, and the, and uh, they said, actually, would you mind if we did a piano quartet by this person instead? <laughs> yeah. We all want to play it together. Oh. And so it was great. And it, to have that spirit um, mm-hmm. among the p- musicians means a lot to Matt and me because it means they really want to be here and are l- enthusiastic about playing with each other. I started this hour with a piece by Dvorak, the song to the moon, and I neglected to mention at the time that the reason I chose that is because you, Susanna, are going to be singing that on the Saturday night program, and I wondered if you had a reason for choosing that. I mean, is it a favorite or just a lovely piece, or how did you come to choose that? It is a favorite. It's also our little nod to the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, and Huntsville played a big part in that, and and since then has been a big presence in the um, spaceflight community and and we admire them so much and that was a huge accomplishment and so that's our little that's nice to celebrate let's take just a minute to listen to some music we're going to listen to a bit of Bach from one of this year's Twickenham Fest performers I have a CD that I've actually played on the air some before before I even knew she was coming we've had it for a little while we have Michelle Ross she's playing the presto from the sonata number one in C minor of Johann Sebastian Bach
And that was Bassoonist Holiday by Leroy Anderson, arranged for the South Minneapolis Bassoon Quartet. And you can hear a bassoon trio as part of the Twickenham Fest series of concerts coming up next Saturday afternoon. In case you just tuned in, I'm Dory Nutt. This is Morning Blend, and we're talking to Matt McDonald and Susanna Phillips about everything musical that's going on this week with Twickenham Fest. So now for the part of the interview that delves into your personal lives. <laughs> okay, Susanna, you've, you've been a mom for several years, and Matt, you're the proud father of a new baby girl. You're having this uh, pajama jam concert. I know that you're um, conscious of how much children need music in their lives and all of that, but I, I want to ask you, do you guys remember um, a musical moment, maybe the musical moment, when, as a child, you thought, I want to do that. I want to make music. I had an experience when I went to an opera um, as a teenager. I think I was 13. It was the first. I had gone to performances and gone to shows beforehand and not really been able to sit and pay attention. Uh-huh. Not really been inclined to pay attention, I guess. And I was sitting there, and all of a sudden, I, I watched this woman singing and thankfully, it was at an opera house where they had the subtitles, and so I was able to understand what she was trying to say. Uh-huh. But it occurred to me, um, as she was singing to me, that I didn't need them. The way she was singing, even though it was in another language, I got it. I understood it. And I right. recognized at that point, to me, what music is, which is being able to communicate with people and rise above language barriers or cultural barriers and uh-huh. really really communicate on an intimate level. And that grasped me. I really in, I really was moved by that. I was struck by that. Yeah. And I don't know if I decided to be a musician that day, but I mm-hmm. certainly was excited to explore it mm-hmm. on a di- in a different way than I had before. What about you, Matt? Did you have a, a moment in your early life that grabbed you? Um, well, if there was a, a source in my early life. It was definitely my grandfather who had a fascination with pianos. Um, he himself played the piano um, kind of like crazily well, uh-huh. um, but totally by ear. He never learned how to read music. He occasionally had lessons that he he forced himself to schedule, uh-huh. but uh, that was just nothing. And, and, and anyway, so he would always be playing the piano at family gatherings, and uh, he also was very um, particular. <laughs> and so with kids, his rule was you can play the piano, but with one finger. That is the rule. <laughs> so uh-huh. he was very protective against the banging. But at some point, I expressed an interest in a little bit more than one finger at a time, and he taught me how to play one of his, um, what I now know is like a, a love song that he always played and oh. filled the house with these, you know, lush, almost Rachmaninoff-esque interpretations of these love songs. Um, and so, like Susanna just said, I don't think I, you know, mindfully was like, oh, I'm going to be a musician. Mm-hmm. I just, I associated with it so easily and so um without hesitation that it just was the what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and similarly, I remember a string quartet from Huntsville Symphony came to my elementary school. This was about the same time. And afterwards, they had a question and answer session. One of the kids in the audience said, hey, why do you move your head and stuff? <laughs> 
And I thought, what is this guy, an idiot? Like, <laughs> duh. You know, and that's when I realized, well, maybe maybe I am like them, you know, in this world. And maybe I should, you know, you know embrace that. So if you're listening and, and you are the parents of children or grandparents or neighbors of children and, and you think you might like to bring these kids out next Saturday morning to the, the Huntsville Public Library and have a hands-on experience. Uh, try to play an instrument or learn what they're like, hear somebody play the instruments really well. Mm-hmm. You might you might spark some inspiration there. And okay, so I have another personal question for you. Um, you're having two concerts midday this week, one at Hudson Alpha, one at Redstone Arsenal. And I, I imagine folks will wander in from whatever project they've had their heads buried in and and they'll probably take away some, some beauty and inspiration for their scientific work, maybe looking at problem solving in a different way. But for you guys, music is your job, your day job, day in and day out. What besides music, Matt, gives you inspiration? Lately, I've been really trying to see the similarities in all fields between mm-hmm. people, um, see people that I admire, what they do, and embrace that level of dedication or whatever it may be, their daily patterns, their, their, um, their, the way that they talk to other people or, or whatever it may be, embracing someone I admire. And it sounds really weird, I guess, to say is like a super pop culture figure, Conan O'Brien? Uh-huh. Yeah. Conan? Whatever, if you think he's hilarious or not, you know, he, he's uh, someone I admire. And I could be just totally off on him, I don't know, but um, he seems to have um, a real constitution to himself and one that is creative but also demanding of himself and people around him. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, I like I like him, I think he's cool. Yeah. And other people like that who are representative of like the, these people in great spotlights, um, um, and and what is the common thread between people like that who who are so in the, like I said in the spotlight, but but what what drives them as individuals and how I can embrace that instead of shy away from you know what makes me different than mm-hmm. someone else. What about you, Susanna? From where do you take inspiration? Um, I take inspiration right now from uh, my children. All of my children. I have uh, reached a point of life, which I'm sure many people out there are in, where I I want to set a good example for them. And to me, that means um, really making sure that I'm comfortable and confident and love what I do and to do it to the best of my ability um, with whatever that means. And if that's not the case, to change my situation, to make it true. Mm-hmm. Because I want to set an example for, you know, our daughters and our sons. You know, if they have a, a something that they're very passionate about, that they can do it, but they have to put the work in. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's right now what kind of keeps me centered. Well, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you both talk about the inspiration in your life. And, and folks here in Huntsville from every walk of life can take inspiration from your music this week at any or all of the 10 concerts that Twickenham Fest will present. It's going to be a great week here in Huntsville, Alabama. <laughs> I can just tell you. Tell us again where folks can go to get information and register for free if they want. They can make a donation if they like, but you you can just sign up to go. Where, where can they go to get this information? Um, you can go to twickenhamfest.org, and that's definitely the easiest way to register. Again, we only ask you to register so we can make sure that the experiences for everyone are intimate and, mm-hmm. um, and thoughtful and thought through. Um, again, you can make a donation. We encourage that, but you certainly don't need to. It's a free experience for mm-hmm. everyone. Also, if uh, you forget to register or if you did and you're on a wait list um, and the concert is moments away, I encourage you to come to that concert and, and see what happens. I would hate to discourage anyone from doing that oh, walk Oh, I sure wouldn't because a couple of times in life I've just, you know, thought I couldn't go, but then it turned out I could. So I went and there were 
three or four extra seats and I got in. And I try and get everybody in. (laughs) I try to get everybody in. I I usually see that there's room for one or two more. I think there have been a few times when the Bach by candlelight literally had people hanging from the rafters. Mm -hmm. But uh, that just made for a more exciting experience. And um, I encourage everybody, you know, get online and register if you can't. Just the worst thing that happens is that you go back home, but at least you tried. (laughs) You know, you just touched on something that I would really like to to say we Matt and I started this festival 10 years ago and it was we had two small concerts that were sparsely sparely attended and um, it has grown over the years because of the enthusiasm of the North Alabama community and it's it's genuine and it's exciting and it's full of vigor and I'm so moved by this community and and what they've shown us that they want and the Bach by candlelight is a perfect example mm-hmm. that was a that was a really f- funny exchange between Matt and me we were you know let's think of the most absurd concert we can think of and that's what came to mind and it is who, become who on earth fun. would come to a concert a classical music concert at ten o'clock at night by candlelight yes and, and all of a sudden and where there's no program right. it's just the, the players just play what they want to play mm-hmm. that's what's so inspiring about it yeah. you really do get these musicians at the doing what they love and that's what when they perform their best and but I just want to I really would like to thank from the bottom of my heart and from um, I can I'm certain I can speak for Matt as well I really want to thank this community for the support and for the enthusiasm that they have shown us throughout the years it really um, has been remarkable we've made it 10 years and we're talking about enthusiastically talking about the next chapter of this festival and it's all because of uh, Huntsville I'm so glad. We can't wait to hear you this year and for years and years to come. It's it's the highlight of the musical year here in Huntsville. And I will say it does give our, our families an excuse to have their grandchildren come visit. So it, <laughs> it works out for everybody. It's a bonus. Yeah, that's very good. Well, Suzanne and Matt, thank you so much for taking time away from what must be a very busy week at Twickenham Fest. And not to mention time away from your families, but we thank you for coming by and talking with us here at WLRH. And we'll see you at the concert. See you there. Thank you. Let's listen to a little more music that you will be able to hear at Twickenham Fest on the Sunday afternoon concert. This is the final movement of Paul Schoenfeld's Café Music, performed here by the Almeida Trio.
Thanks again to Susanna Phillips and Matt McDonald for stopping by to talk with Dory Knight about this year's Twickenham Fest, the 10th anniversary, happening this weekend across Huntsville. You can find more information about this amazing concert series at twickenhamfest.org. Thanks also to the wonderful folks at Planet Money for allowing us to air their two-part podcast series on recycling. We hope you enjoyed that as well. And thanks to you for listening and supporting this public radio station and making it possible for us to bring stories like this to you and to the Tennessee Valley. I'm Brett Tannehill. We hope you have a great evening. We'll see you next week for a special presentation of the Public Radio Hour looking at the 20th anniversary of the Chandra X-ray Observatory. We'll talk with Dr. Martin Weiskopf and Jessica Gaskin. We'll see you next week.